Thank you, guys. It's, uh, it's an honor and pleasure to be with you guys. And it's inter- interesting the comment that you made about the funny stories in seminary. Uh, you won't believe this one. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I don't actually have any stories because here's one of the things that I, I, I come to love about Levi. Lee, you, you get what you see and you see what you get. There is no, there, there is no hidden things. There is, he is who he is, loves the Lord, very open and honest. And I've always appreciated that at, at the deepest level with Levi. And um, just like you were mentioning, so I, w- I spent, gosh, the better part of a decade uh, in a denomination doing church planting. I saw upwards of 60 churches being planted in Minnesota, Wisconsin. Really enjoyed that, but um, as I grew in that and came to enjoy it, the Lord, for me, began to convict and convince me that um, most of humanity works a job. Most of you guys go and you work not like ministry is a, is a great privilege, but I felt like God was calling me back into that because that's the world I came from. I came from the world of retail and those type of things, and so now that's the world I've gone back into, and I can tell you um, the conversations that I've had missionally uh, in the workspace are some of the greatest and most rich conversations that I've ever had anywhere in all my time in church planting, and so I want to encourage you with that. I think a lot of times... In our, in our vocations, in this idea of career that is more of a Western idea, but this idea of career that uh, this is what I'm going to do, God is calling us to redeem all those spaces. There, he is calling us into these things to bring the gospel, the, the feet of good news, into all these spaces. And one of my favorite books, honestly, is Joshua. That's what we'll be talking about today. Happens to be my name. Uh, but more than, more than that, it happens to be the only book of the Old Testament that bears the name of our Savior. I don't know if you've ever thought about that for a second. Yeshua, it's the only name. In fact, um, it's, it's still offensive to this day in parts of Israel. I remember going on a, an Israeli sort of, uh, it was an educational tour. Our tour guide was a Ph.D. scholar, a Tanakh scholar, not a Christian. We tried our best to uh, talk about Jesus. She, I think, mentioned him three times uh, in ten days. But when we went into the Holocaust Museum there, we, just like any other place you would go to, I'd go up and place my order, uh, and they, what's your name? Well, not even thinking about it, my name's Joshua. She looked up, the person beside her looked up, and she said, we're going to call you Josh today. And, I mean, I'm Josh, like, my name's Joshua. So <laughs> I, I said, well, my name's Joshua. And then it dawned on me. Like, it's still that fresh in the minds of people that they were unwilling to even call out, Joshua, your beet salad is done. And for me, it was startling because outside of Christ, like outside of Christ, let's just say you're in Israel and that's completely offensive outside of that. This was the greatest commander that the Israelites had ever had. His, his style of, of weaponry and his uh, military mind is still taught at West Point today. This idea of shock and awe did not come with George Bush. The idea of shock and awe came with Joshua. This is what he did. Some of the things that he did uh, when he went, so AI, for example, when they went in, and we know the sin of Achan, many of us have heard that story. When they went in, and this should have been a battle, he actually kept a lot of his good soldiers back because this is an easy one. He goes in, they lose that, he's surprised. And we'll talk a little bit about the story of Achan, but when they go back the second time, what you may not understand is... Uh, because a lot of times what's happening in Scripture, 
um, isn't necessarily, there's on the surface and there's things that aren't on the surface. Well, you've got to understand the idea of deception in ancient warfare was not something that you did. Your army faced your army and we saw who was strongest. The idea that Joshua would bring a, a, a head front of army and a, a back front of army and then have the other ones retreat and go away was unheard of. This is why, you ever read the, this part of the scripture, you're like, why did you guys give chase? They gave chase because it's so uncommon. You don't do these type of things. And in fact, in ancient warfare, it was actually shameful to keep fighting a battle you were losing. Now, in today's culture, we're just going to keep on muscling through. If we lose every single person, it doesn't matter. And Joshua's day retreat was honorable because you had lost. And so as he retreated, they're coming after him. And we know the story there. They destroy that city. Um, but what I want to do today is I want to talk primarily about Joshua 24. Having been in the bookstore, Christian bookstore culture, no, no offense to the Christian bookstore culture, I've seen every verse you can imagine on every piece of trinket you can imagine. I've seen it all. Levi's seen some of it too. Um, and, and this one is uh, really a verse that our family has up on plaques all over our house because we understand it in a way that I hope you will understand it going forward. And it's that, that verse that you, you've already heard read. It's the, the more famous one. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So what is going on here actually when, when Joshua does this? Well, let me paint the scene for you real quick. As we start off in chapter 24, this is the last chapter of Joshua. Joshua said, the Bible says this, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. Now it's important to understand he'd done this three times. This is the third time he's done this, and the scripture here suggests that it wasn't just the leaders. He's gathering as many people, leaders, tribes, everybody. This is sort of like a, an all-team meeting. Like, this is everybody needs to be at this because what you're going to hear is going to be very uncommon. So he gathers all the tribes. He called for the elders of Israel and their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your father lived beyond the river. Now what he's going to do, he's got all of Israel in front of him. Okay? And he's going to present to them on him. He's old too. By this time, Joshua is a very aged man. And the picture I want you to see is the possibility of a very aged, salty, God-fearing soldier standing possibly in all of his general regalia. Now, why would he do such a thing? Well, let me explain. The first thing he does to Israel is he helps them remember who their God was, what, they, what he has done for you. He has promised to make you a people, and he did it. He has promised to give you a land, and I'll show you where he says he did it. He has promised to protect you, and he called you out of Egypt. He's promised all these things, and then he transitions, and he says, choose this day who you will serve. Ask for me and my house. And what he doesn't mean is he doesn't mean he and his wife. He doesn't even mean he and his wife and their kids or their grandkids. The house of Joshua would have been hundreds of people, likely even behind him, possibly, if you see this scene in your mind. When Joshua says to them, you can either serve the gods of Abraham or you can serve the Canaan. Now, that's where you came from, so he's giving them a book in. Serve the gods of Abraham or you can serve these fresh Canaanite gods, which we've just seen as we've gone in to destroy this land. You can serve these gods, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, here's where I want us to go back to Joshua 1. 
And it's important we put this puzzle piece together so you get a full-orbed view of what Joshua is actually implying here. Here's what he says. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, my servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross the Jordan and all this people to the land which I, I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place in which the sole of your feet treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses from the wilderness and, and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, that's the land that we're familiar with, those boundaries, river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. We know the book of Joshua. What does he then go do? He gathers the people and he begins the process of going and sacking every single city, right? By the time he gets to Ai, before they lose that battle because of Achan's sin, the word of Jericho, and these cities are fairly close. If you saw a map, you would see that they're very close to each other. The word of what happened at Jericho has already gotten there. So they're already hunkered in. They're already ready for battle. Now, the goal is, like God has said, to go into these cities and destroy the idolaters. That's, that's what he's doing. Now, let's go all the way back to chapter 24. He's telling them, or he's asking them, are you going to be like them? Because as for me and my house, we will bear the sword against you as well. What Joshua is doing is provoking civil war, if necessary. How do we know this? I love that Ardell alluded to this. Christ is the substance of all the shadows. And I could give you several verses. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says all the feasts, all the festivals, all the moons. Christ fulfills all those things. Acts 3.24, all the prophets spoke of Christ. 1 Peter, 1 Peter uh, 1, chapter, or verses 10 through 12, all the prophets spoke of the suffering and glory of this. All of this in the Old Testament is pointing towards Christ. Hebrews 8.5, Hebrews 11.1, 1, and the list goes on and on and on. Joshua is not the Joshua that Jesus is. Jesus is the better Moses. Moses said in Deuteronomy, I, at the end of it, at the end of the, chat, the book of Deuteronomy, he said, there's coming one better than I whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. Constantly the prophets are speaking about this one that would come and Jesus then becomes the better Joshua. Now here's what, what's interesting here. When Joshua presents this question, the Israelites, knowing what just happened, are like, we're going to serve your God. Right? Whether, whether or not their hearts were in the right place, the scripture suggests a couple things that possibly it wasn't. We even see the further history that possibly it wasn't. But in that moment, they understand what the gravity of what's happening, and they have said, we do not want to be destroyed today. Fast forward to the better Joshua when Jesus, in Matthew 24 and other places, walks up out of Jerusalem, this beautiful city to which Rome envied, which is one of the reasons why Rome hated them so much, they walk up out of the city. Jesus turns around and he says, not one stone will be left on the other. And you know the ensuing conversation. But what you have here is you have now a better Joshua who has done in a civil war sense what this Joshua did not do. And that is the vindication of uh, Jesus Christ's crucifixion in 70 AD, the destruction of his people, the destruction of the city 
city of Jerusalem, the destruction that came in, to understand the gravity of Joshua standing before the people of Israel. Now here, let's be human for a second. One of the things that I think is missed in Scripture is the humanity of it all. Like we can read these pages and we see these things and we know these things. You know, one plus one equals two, but the humanity of it all is often missed. Imagine Joshua having to stand up in front of people he loves and he cherishes, no doubt has deep relationships with. And don't think for a second it was an easy thing for him to do what he did to Achan. God commanded that that, be, that happen. And to understand Joshua 8, when Achan does what he does, because he's told, we're going to take this city, take none of their treasures. Achan does the opposite. Now Achan, Achan is now under judgment. Now have to understand something here in Joshua 8. When Joshua begins to whittle down who did this? Who did it? I want you to see the compassion. A lot of people don't see the compassion of Joshua in this. They just see sort of like it's cold, calloused. We're going to stone their whole family and burn the stones. And every, like everybody's getting destroyed. And we see that it's very callous. Joshua whittles us down and comes to Achan. And is like, what have you done? You, you ever had that with your children? I know I, I have. Like, and I'm sure as my kids from, I've got a 22-year-old all the way to a 7-year-old. And I've had a lot of, what have you done? conversations and it seems like as they get older <laughs> I'm more startled at what have you done now I've got good kids right and, they, and there's could be worse things that they've done but don't miss the humanity of not only Joshua but Jesus he if you can't understand Jesus doing mundane human things I've often said to my kids you can't understand many of what's happening here mundane human things a cough a sneeze, a stumped toe. Like these things are the humanity of this. And Joshua now goes to Achan, finds out that it's Achan, he's whittled it down. And what does he do? He does not immediately destroy Achan, which he could have. He gives Achan an opportunity to repent. The consequences are coming. The consequences are set in stone by God and they cannot be removed. But he gives Joshua an opportunity, or he gives Achan an opportunity to confess and repent. The beauty of this in Christ is Christ, as we've sang about all morning long, is the better Joshua in that he not only gives us an opportunity to repent, but does not destroy us with fire, does not heap rocks on us. He does not do that. In fact, he takes them on himself. And Joshua, I, I would like to imagine, would, would have done a similar thing. I don't think there's... I don't think there's many characters, it could be argued, but I don't think there's many characters in the Old Testament that are as close to Christ as Joshua was. And so when you see the compassion here, you've got to understand Joshua's now standing in front of them, and he's declaring God is more important than you not serving him. So choose this day who you will serve. Fast forward to Israel in the first century, and they chose wrong. And the consequences of that Joshua promise came to pass. Now, here's something interesting I want for us to understand, too, with Joshua. I think oftentimes this gets misunderstood and misconstrued in many of the contexts. When they go into this land, there's all this debate on, and we won't get into all the nuances of it, of the land and the people and who this and that. Now, let me show you something that you may not have ever seen. Towards the end of this, leading up to this moment where Joshua calls all the leaders, all the people, has them to proclaim who you're with. Are you with God or are you with them? Because if you're with them, we're coming. My house is coming against you with the sword. 
because that's what God has told us to do. Here's what he says. This is chapter 21, verses 43, 44, and 45. And this morning, I want to encourage you that you and I serve a faithful God. A faithful God in big things, and he is most certainly concerned like Achan with the small things. I think a lot of times we forget that. He is concerned with the small things at the small ages. He's concerned with the big things at bigger ages. He's concerned because he loves us. And I think that's missed. This is what it says. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. What's the promise in Genesis 20, 12? The promise in Genesis 12 is that I'm going to make you a people, and I'm going to give you a land. And all this time... All this pain, all of this has transpired to the point where now he's saying to Joshua, I've done it. Look around. And this is why Joshua calls them to look around. Look around. God has done this. And he goes on and says, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no, no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. So if you ever wonder if the, the promise of the land and the people would ever happen, it did. It did. But now, so just like Christ is being foreshadowed here in Joshua, there is a broader culture and context that's being foreshadowed and promised in where we live today. So why does this matter for us today? Here's how it matters. Because Christ was the better Joshua that made sure that these promises happened not at a regional level, but at a global level. So this is what you're seeing now. You're seeing that at a global level, the promises of God, and what are the promises of God? The promises of God from the most quoted verse in all of Scripture, Psalm 110, 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. And these promises that Christ would and is reigning, and that he would send his spirit to ensure the victory over his enemies, which aren't confined to a region in the Middle East, but are the entire globe. I was talking with some friends we had over recently. They're pastors at another church, good friends of ours. And uh, one is in uh, biology, and he is, his mind is just the things that he talks about in terms of biology and science is fantastic. And his question was, I can't imagine that God would create the earth um, and then there'd be nothing else out here. We were just kind of pondering some of these things. Also, well, let me, it's possible, but let me help you understand what's happening with the earth. There is, in Scripture, all these rhythms and cycles, and you've got an arc cycle that's happening with the earth. What do I mean by that? In, in Noah's day, he built an ark. He put people in it, they ate, to save them. Everything else was destruction and destroyed, right? You see that? Christ fulfills that, right? We've already talked about that. Christ is the substance of all these shadows. In Christ, we are hidden from destruction, and therefore we are saved, renewed, made a new people. These arc rhythms go everywhere. The earth itself, in its global glory, is a cosmic arc. Think about that. It's a cosmic arc. You're not going anywhere outside the cosmic arc and living without some sort of suit. And you certainly aren't living for long. These things are built in, like Psalm 19, to the fabric of everything that we know. Christ is now saying, I am going to make a people of all the nations. Not just one, not just one specific ethnicity, 
all of the nations. All of the earth is mine. I am the king now over all of the earth, and I will subdue it, and I will have my way. How's he doing that? In a very different way than the, the Old Testament, in one, in one sense. In the Old Testament, when God wanted to display his glory at a grandiose level, his spirit would come down, do something amazing, and it would go away. So it's sort of like this right here. What happens in the New Testament? The promised spirit of God is all-encompassing and indwells his people. It doesn't go away. It's, it's here. This, you have God. You have Christ. You have the, the spirit of God. It's indwelling us. Why? To ensure the global glory of our God. And here's why this is encouraging to you. Going all the way back to my transition from ministry into the business world. What I saw in the business world was a deep need for Christ to be glorified. And I, when you see Joshua, he's constantly, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. I am convinced that God's global glory is on display and will be further on display every step that we take. And the ethic of that will make itself known. And you can see that. We could go into all sorts of statistics. How the, This is the best time in all the world to live today. And tomorrow will be better. You might see all these things that are sensationalized, but there has been no better time in all of human history than right now. Both medically, both physically, from a famine standpoint. The last famine was 10 years ago. These things are an ethic that flows from his people. God's people created schools. God's people gave us hospitals. God's people have done all these things. But one of the things that I noticed after the Industrial Revolution is that work was split from the home and now is somewhere else. And so we as missionaries have to be in that space. And here's the beauty of it all. Everyone Christ means for this church, that church, all of us to reach. Everyone Christ means for us to reach are within our reach. I used to tell churches, and some would not necessarily like it, but I used to tell them, you get rid of all your programs. You get rid of all the, not the Sunday school stuff, but like all the fancy things you do. You can get rid of all the stuff and teach your people to confess Christ in their home in their work, and with their neighbors. And at the end of the day, if you die and stand before Christ and you've led your family to love the Lord, you've led a couple of co-workers to love the Lord. Like I had a friend of mine who after three years, finally at work, finally went to church with his wife. She's been going. He calls me the Norse preacher. It because I, I have one of my, the historical things I like to study is Norse, Norse uh, history and Viking. and it's, it's all, He calls me the Norse preacher. He finally went to church with his wife after many conversations. But your family, your co-workers, and your neighbors, if you stand before Christ and that is all that you confessed him about and to, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because he hasn't called us to these outer spheres that we get so wrapped up in church planting. If each one of us took that seriously, that your call... This is why Paul said you can't be a church leader unless you're leading your family well. Because in the family, the family was who you lived with, it's who you worked with. You can't do that. You can't be a church leader. You can't be in leadership unless you're leading your family well. Lead your family to Christ. Just like Joshua said, ask for me in my house. Because they all stood behind him. We will bear the sword if need be because we trust God and we trust Joshua. And now in this post-industrial age, you're going to have to confess Christ at work. And I've heard many stories of people being fired, people in tears, grown men in tears over persecution that they, it has to happen. 
There has to be someone in your work sphere that you should be praying about, that you should be after. And here's what you should, based on all that we've learned this morning, here's what you should be confident in. This is God's world. And you and him, in Him are going to be victorious. It may not look like what you think, but Christ is victorious more and more every single day. And that's what Joshua was trying to get them to trust. He said, look, at all that you've done. Remember in Egypt? Like, you're nowhere even near that anymore. Here's where we are now. And so that's my encouragement for you guys this morning. When you see Joshua, understand that he may have stood alone. You may stand alone. But this is what you stand on. The faithfulness of God. And the love and caring kindness of a Savior who would give everything for us. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for uh, this church. Thank you for uh, so many hearts, Lord, that are uh, out in the work sphere, out with their families, wondering if what they're doing matters, wondering if that small conversation even matters. It does. Father, I pray that you would continue to be the victorious king that you are, Lord, the conquering Lord, just like, G just like Joshua conquered, Father, a small little portion of the world. You have conquered it all. You are the king of the world. There is no room for two people on your throne. It's just you, and you, that's where you sit now, according to Paul in Ephesians. So help us cherish that, Father. But more than that, Lord, help us to actually believe it, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done and will do. In Christ's name, amen. Let's confirm what we heard in singing about our great commanders.